This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. All right, here we go with the Bob Olin Show. Bob, a frosty morning to start. Well, down in the 20s most places this morning, and it looks like the growing season may finally be coming to an end. Well, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. That came as a little bit of a surprise. I think in most places they weren't really anticipating temperatures down in the 20s, but I know uh, we did experience it. A lot of folks close to the lake, you know, Dave, mm-hmm. um, certainly weren't affected. <laughs> Well, I had to scrape my windshield this morning, so we were frosty and superior, and I'm not that far away from the lake. No, you really aren't. So uh, this, But this game is a little bit of a surprise, but it shouldn't really because our average frost-free frost, first frost in the fall in at the airport in Duluth is the fall equinox, September 21st, ah. and then down along the lake, October 2nd. So really, yeah. we're quite late for yeah. this kind of a frost. Maybe it's an indication that, in fact, our growing season is extended. And, of course, we're very fortunate because we were able to uh, get a couple more weeks of growth out of a lot of our plant material. But I think things are kind of wrapping up right now for sure. All right. Well, you've got a special guest on the phone this morning. Yeah, I'm very pleased. Uh, Speaking of colder temperatures, uh, my (laughs) colleague, uh, Troy Salter, who resides down in the Carlton County area, maybe you can give us a little update on your cold temperatures last down there, Troy. Well, good morning to both of you. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me on this morning. Uh, actually, this morning we had uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 27 degrees. Uh, in most cases, that is going to uh, terminate any any growth other than those cold season crops like kale and, and uh, other uh, turnips and those sort of crops. But for the most part, uh, it's it's quite frosty out there this morning. And would you not uh, agree that this is a little late for that first killing frost, Troy? Oh, yeah. Actually, it really is. And and yesterday, by chance, uh, I was going through some uh, data, and it's looking like uh, actually the, the biggest impact that we're seeing on some of this climate change sort of stuff is really in this uh, – uh, fall type uh, weather, we we see some of it early spring, but uh, we're mostly taking the biggest advantage of it in this fall period, uh, and it really uh, does encourage us to think about the aspects of uh, what crops can we be growing, um, vegetable or field crops uh, that can grow in these uh, cooler temperatures, withstand the frost like this, and then take off again. Um, after, uh, and so if if we can make some selections like that, it can be very beneficial. I think uh, that's good advice. You know, there are many benefits to growing uh, certain crops. If we take a look at the vegetable realm that I'm most familiar with, uh, growing them in the fall, we avoid a lot of the insect pressure. If we take a look at the cabbage family in general, cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, um, Brussels sprouts, all of these crops are vulnerable to summer damage. Um, we'll take a look at uh, coliform broccoli as an example that have become extremely popular. Broccoli, incidentally, if you wanted to have the most nutritious vegetable out there that didn't have necessarily the highest amount of vitamin C or, or vitamin A, but overall in terms of a composite, the most nutritious vegetable overall is broccoli. The problem with growing this as a summer crop is of course, what we consume is that immature flower head. We get warmer temperatures mid-July, 
and uh, the, the immature head is ready to harvest. If you don't get it harvested within a day or two, it, of course, jumps out, and we've got this beautiful uh, bouquet of yellow flowers out there. So you have very a very, very limited harvest window in the summer months. If you target for growth in the fall, first off, we eliminate our two biggest insect pets, the imported cabbage worm and the cabbage, uh, cabbage moth, and uh, we eliminate those they're not around in the fall so we don't have to use anything for protection and yet you get a nice harvest window in the fall of the year that you typically won't have mid-season so you're right troy i think maybe looking forward and taking advantage of an extended growing season in the fall of course we all know what the weather is as soon as we plan for this we'll get a sharp hard killing freeze uh in mid-september something like that we've always we've all seen that as well. So there's a certain element of unpredictability, of course. You know, Troy, uh, going ahead here, we're looking at some protection. Uh, this is the first killing frost, in my opinion, in, in this immediate area. And we take a look at uh, when we're planting some of our spring flowering bulbs. This would include, of course, the tulips, daffodils, narcissus, those ornamentals, but also garlic. And we really want to wait until we've got colder temperatures down in the ground before we plant them. We've always used about October 15th as a good planting date, and we're just a little bit beyond that. But we typically will say wait a week or two after that first killing frost. So really, you can start thinking about planting these spring flowering bulbs now. Uh, but you got a couple of weeks, and of course, rather than holding them over, you definitely want to get them in the, in the ground at this particular point. So, um, you know, temperatures... Ground temperature is still warm. We've still got heat in the uh, in the surface there. We don't want these bulbs in too early because then they can uh, start to grow prematurely. And if we get an extended period of warm weather, we can even get some of the shoots out of the ground, and then they're damaged by uh, colder temperatures coming forward. So you might want to think a little bit about that. Obviously, we could be cleaning up a lot of things in the garden. Uh, we've got um, you know a lot of debris there that should really be removed uh, from the garden surface. We, of course, are very um, tuned into the needs of pollinators. And in many cases, a lot of that debris houses pollinators, uh, you know, for winter protection. So many of the native bees and so forth, they're either going to inter- they're either going to overwinter down in the ground or they're going to be overwintering in some of the actual plant material above ground. So I want to think a little bit about that. We want to get those compost piles uh, working right now. You know, that's uh, really a function of uh, totally of um, nitrogen as well as uh, our carbon sources, a little bit of moisture. We've had enough of that. Get that compost pile working. Most of our soils are deficient in organic matter. So compost is really gardener's gold. It's free for the composting. So you've got to get in there. You've got to collect it. You've got to manage it a little bit. But uh, get a big pile going. We did some research on that several years ago now. And um, forget about all of the systems, forget about the compost starters, just get yourself a, a great big large pile, if possible, if you can get it even five feet in height, it self-insulates from the cold winter. We were able with just large piles just to compost almost through the entire winter, even when temperatures were down uh, significantly below zero. Uh, we're going to be collecting fall leaves now in there. There can be garden debris if there was some disease, as long as it's in a hot compost pile. Uh, you're going to be just fine. So composting, we're going to think a little bit about right now at this point. We're going to talk a little bit about those tender perennials. 
if you've got ornamental perennials that you want to overwinter, uh, these are going to need to be protected with, with straw. And being an agriculturist, uh, Troy, you can go ahead and define the difference between straw and hay. A lot of our audience uh, may not be aware of that difference, but uh, why don't you give your thoughts in the, in the value of straw as opposed to hay as an insulating material that comes over the top? Sure, Bob. In relationship to that, hay is really um, raised uh, as a fodder uh, for feed uh, as we get into the winter time frame. Um, and uh, with that in mind, generally speaking, uh, the coarseness of it actually, as the coarseness uh, increases, the quality of that feed um, or fodder uh, goes down. So, that is uh, the situation with hay. In regards to uh, straw, straw is actually the stems of cereal grains like oats, like barley, like wheat, uh, that after they reach physiological maturity, the grain is stripped off of them and utilized for making uh, food products and livestock feed. But what remains in the field is kind of a residue and uh, because that has reached physiological maturity, the actual cells are uh, very high in fiber, and so they have the ability to keep their shape. The benefit of that is, one, they're very dry, typically, and secondly, they have a lot of air space. And really, in regards to the aspects of the insulative value of that straw, really relates directly to how much airspace is there. And when we apply it, we want that to be bulky. And so we want to fluff it up because generally if it comes in a bale, it's been packed pretty tight. So we want to fluff it to create more airspace. And that airspace is really what helps to protect. Now, I think what you're referring to, Bob, is especially at this time of the year, if we're, um, if we're trying to utilize that straw as a, a form of insulation, uh, we want to try and keep the moisture off of it. Uh, and so, therefore, our timing really is critical in relationship to this. We want to put it on uh, our plants to protect them. Um, but we don't want to put it on too early because if it gets soaked and saturated, we have just then depleted the value of that insulative value of that, um, that air that is in that straw. And so that's kind of the uh, strategy that we have to look at in regards to how we use that straw. Uh, that's great. Uh, some very, very good points there once again. Uh, you don't necessarily want to go too early with application of that straw. If we could use strawberries as an example, the flower buds, and of course those flower buds are setting up in the fall, they're forming, they're developing. We've got to get them through the winter because next spring, of course, they're going to break. We're going to get flowers, and from that we get the fruit. Uh, they really need to acclimate to cooler temperatures, so you don't want to cover too early. In the case of strawberries, we want to wait not for that first frost or first freeze, but we want to wait till we get temperatures down into the low 20 degrees Fahrenheit so they've had an opportunity to acclimate. And at that point, you come over the top with a good quality straw. And again, it's trapped air. So you mentioned loft. If you're going to use leaves, the problem with putting leaves on is uh, first rain or heavy snow, it compresses those leaves down. 
and then you no longer have trapped air. You've lost much of the insulating value. So uh, if you're going to use leaves, we call it a pillow pack. Use one of those plastic trash bags and stuff uh, the leaves in the bag. That'll retain the loft, keeps the water off, and you've got good insulating value there. So there are many crops, of course, that are very hardy and uh, do, don't require any kind of protection. Then we've got a lot of the, the other perennial materials that really will benefit from the application of some kind of a covering material to protect from the winter. Now, if we are very fortunate, as we have been over the last couple of years, we've had a nice uh, snowfall prior to the onset of extremely cold temperatures. Snow is really the best insulator, and if we could get even as much as an inch or two. Now, it's that first inch or two, the R value of that, that really provides a great deal of protection. Then we've got this law of diminishing returns with each additional inch of snow, as an example, or other insulating material. We lose a little bit of the insulating value, uh, but it does continue to add to the protection. But those first inch or two, so I've had people say, I don't really have enough straw. All I can cover is an inch or two. Put it on anyway if you're seeing those temperatures that are getting down uh, below about 28 or 25 degrees. If it's getting cold, know you've got tender material. Put on whatever you can. I just mentioned the fact that leaves aren't a good insulator, but if that's what you got, get it on there. Poly is not a good insulator. Polyethylene sheeting, because once again, we don't have any trapped air. We get a little air trapped underneath that film. But uh, a double-layer poly is going to be much better for you than just a single layer. So if you find yourself without available straw, you find yourself with a, a change in the weather, uh, this one surprised us, I think. Now, I was not expecting temperatures to be this cold. We predicted to have 37 degrees, and where I am, we got about um, just above freezing, about 32 and a half. So it's, it was a little colder, but if you get caught and surprised, put something on there for protection, particularly a little later in the season. Bob and Troy, we've got to take a uh, quick break, and then we'll be right back with more of the Bob Olin Show here on KDAL 9.30 now. It is 9.34. Once again, Bob and uh, Troy. Yeah, thank you very much, Dave. Um, you know, we've been talking a little bit about this sunset of cold weather. We do have an event coming up this evening. Uh, we're putting on a Salsa Fest. It's an educational event. We're doing it in cooperation with St. Louis County University of Minnesota Master Gardeners. We're really looking forward to the evening. Troy's going to join us as well. So uh, we're taking a look at Salza uh, from our perspective. We're going to take a look at uh, some of the definitions. There are multiple types of salsas. We typically have got our red salsas with tomatoes and onions and peppers and garlic, the main components. We're going to take a little bit of a look at how we grow out some of these crops in the Northland. And we have done a fair amount of research, both Troy and I. Troy continues to be an extension faculty member at University of Minnesota, and that's where I spent most of my career. So we still have got a research bend and been uh, setting out a lot of materials and trial and exploring different ways of growing some of these one-season crops. So we're going to be sharing uh, that with all of our participants. And then our master gardeners are preparing uh, different types of salsas, and everyone's going to get to sample all those salsas. As a matter of fact, I... I just picked up about six huge bags of, of tortilla chips, so you're going to get a chance to try all these different salsas. And we have a salsa contest with uh, several celebrity judges. Neil Atkins, Dave, is one of our judges, as well as uh, Gallagher. Wow. You know some of these folks. So we managed to wrestle a few of these types away from their busy days, and uh, they're going to be joining us 
that's always a fun event, both for the judges as well as those that uh, that enter. And then to cap it all off, uh, we have put together specifically for this event a recipe resource book. So we've got in that book, of course, um, about 60 different salsa recipes. The book is 73 pages long, just came back from the print shop. So we've got it bound and ready to go. It looks exceptional. And in there, we also have got content that Troy's developed, content that I've developed on um, growing some of these crops as well as food preservation. We're going to sneak just a little bit of food safety your way because we want to make sure that people are aware of some of the risks, particularly if you're home canning, and we want uh, we want that to be covered. So, Troy, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about that and the fact that you're going to provide a nice service for the public in uh, testing some of the pressure gauges that go into a, a pressure canner. Bob, I, I really uh, feel very, very uh, concerned about this component. Uh, safety of our uh, participants, uh, not only do we help uh, the general public with general information, research-based information, but in most cases, these people become our friends very quickly. And the last thing I want them to do is to put up, uh, uh, whether it's uh, salsa or beans or other um, uh, meats that people uh, pressure can. All of these things, we want to make sure that it gets done right and uh, successful. And, and one of the, the tools that we utilize in this process is called a pressure canner. And the reason this is critical is because when you develop steam uh, or pressure in a canner like this, we can get that temperature from that 212 degrees of boiling upwards, uh, depending on what pressure you run it at, upwards of about 250 degrees, and that is enough to kill off uh, some of the organisms that don't get killed off at, at uh, that uh, lower temperature of 212. With that in mind, if that gauge is not accurate and we're trying to get to uh, a pressure of 11 or 6 or, or 20, depending on what you're canning, um, we then run the risk of that uh, specifically Clostridium botulitum uh, to actually develop in those, uh, those jars that you've stored this in. And so as part of uh, extension, uh, one of those components is we provide a service by actually testing the gauges on your canners. You bring them in uh, this evening. Uh, at the event, we will do that uh, free of charge, and we'll evaluate them against a calibrated uh, gauge uh, that we have and uh, do that comparison. And that is something that you want to do as a home uh, canner on an annual basis, just to be sure that uh, you haven't bumped your gauge or uh, that there hasn't been some rust that develops in that gauge. They're relatively inexpensive and easy to replace, so if they're off, uh, that is critical. And this year, as we've been out and doing this uh, pressure gauge uh, testing for people, I have been absolutely astonished at how many people have had to replace uh, um, as we've been out. And so I'm really excited to uh, take this on. Uh, one of my interns really... Uh, encouraged me this year to get out and do this uh, on a more widespread basis and uh, it's really been successful and people really 
are grateful that we we're doing this for them. That's just great. It's great service. Um, you know, it's interesting. And you mentioned Clostridium botulinum. This is the uh, bacterial organism that has these heat-resistant spores. It is what we call a strict anaerobe. In other words, it really functions anytime you pull a vacuum. And you're pulling vacuums in a pressure canner. If there isn't the acidity there, uh, you run this risk. So you really have to have times and temperatures. we got to get uh, the temperature above the boiling point. Hence a pressure canner. Now, the interesting thing is we've got so many new canners coming on. People that have never canned before, they want to give it a try. Uh, we have kind of a back-to-the-future thing going on. We've got a, a lot of processed food, of course, in our diets. A lot of people want to go back to more natural foods. There's good justification for that. They're going back to some of the older systems. They may have, and I've heard this, and you have as well, Individuals that have a canner that belonged to their grandmother, it's older, it hasn't been used for a generation, and that they may not have gauges or seals that are really uh, accurate. So we want to be very careful. So it's a great service. Again, the Salsa Fest, now that's going to be this evening. It's going to be at Salem Lutheran Church. It's just right on the intersection, just a little bit north of that intersection of Haines Road, which is a division between Duluth and Hermantown. So it's just on the Hermantown side, just north of Piedmont. The program begins at 6 o'clock. We're going to start registration at 5 o'clock. Those that entered the Salsa contest at 5. And um, the evening will be done by about 8.30 or so. We're going to have a good time. And if, in fact, you can't make it to the entire program, then by all means, if you want to just drop your pressure canner lid and gauge off and pick it up later, we'll test that for you without any, any charge. So... It's going to be a, a, a very fun evening. We have enough space so people can walk in. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be a good time. You'll, you'll come up with a, a sample of a lots of different salsas and a great recipe as well as resource book and hopefully learn a little bit in the process from uh, any number of the people that are going to be participating in presenting material, myself as well as Troy and the Master Gardeners are there to be helpful as well. So that's the Salsa Fest tonight at Salem Lutheran Church. Register by about 5.30 if you can. Program is going to begin sharply at 6. There is a $20 charge, which covers just the expenses of the program, and you will, in fact, get uh, your recipe book as a participant as well. So we're really looking forward to it. We've got a nice pre-registration. We always have a fun uh, time at this particular event. want to thank Troy for uh, certainly joining us for that evening. You know, Troy, we are going to be talking a little bit about garlic, and uh, among other things, and I wanted to just touch on one thing because uh, we try to stay alert to some of the changes in information. And in this information, there's stuff lying around on the Internet all over the place. But we were talking about protecting uh, certain crops in the fall. We've got a raspberry crop. And, you know, I've become more and more uh, appreciative of the fact we can grow beautiful raspberries. We did have a problem with an insect pest there, the uh, spotted ring Drosophila fly. In the last couple of years, it hasn't been a problem. So hopefully we can continue with that. And uh, this crop becomes extremely valuable. Our typical uh, summer-bearing kings, right now what we're going to be doing is we're going to cleaning up the raspberry patch with one of our fall activities after frost. So this means that this year's green kings, what we call the primal king, that will bear fruit next year, are still in the field. Those that bore fruit this year are dying back. So we want to get in there. We want to clip all those out, 
the old um, canes, the floral canes, that bore fruit already, they're pretty easy to identify. We take all those out at ground level. We thin down some of the new canes, the green vegetative canes. So we got about um, one every six inches or something like that. And then when they're dormant, now this is a change in information. The work was done out at Norse Farms out in Massachusetts. We got a great commercial raspberry grower and plant grower out there. And instead of clipping those back in the next spring after and eliminating winter damage, they found you're going to enhance your yields by pruning them back after they're dormant to about the five-foot level and before you clip them on to any kind of guide wire or trellising system you may have. So we want to clip the tips back and cut them back from maybe six-foot height to five-foot height from right as right at a bud. We're going to do that as one of our fall activities very late in the year. And the raspberries, because they don't ship very well at all, uh, they are an extraordinarily valuable crop something we can grow relatively easily in the northern part of the United States. Very challenging when it gets uh, down beyond um, the southern Iowa. Very, very difficult to grow raspberries of any quality. So we're very fortunate we have the crop. All activity, going to do a little bit of fall pruning along with uh, protecting some of our very tender uh, perennials. All right, Bob and Troy, so, we've got to um, take another break here, if that's okay. 9.45, and we'll be right back. And we're back more of the Bob Olin Show here at 948 now on a Tuesday morning. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I was uh, mentioning the salsa fest we're going to have. You know, it's obviously it's Mexican cuisine, and uh, some of the fun part of preparing materials for this is we get to take a little look ourselves and learn something I was not aware. But salsa is just a dip. That's just the Spanish for uh, a dip or kind of gravy, and we all know that with chips. But there are about six different basic types of salsa in Mexican cuisine. Uh, most of what uh, we've got, of course, are just the tomatoes, the red salsas, but there certainly are salsa verde, green salsas, the cooked salsas. And we're going to take a look at a few of these things, and we're going to di- deep dive a little bit even into some of the hotter peppers. Tastes begin to change now. For the longest time, we would grow a few peppers, most of which were sweet. This is what most people, I think, in the area from Scandinavian or German descent, Germanic descent, uh, aren't really too uh, accustomed to the hotter peppers. But that's not true necessarily a little farther south, and our tastes are changing a little bit. So we grow a few jalapenos. We grow a few poblanos and uh uh, you know, these are pretty wimpy peppers. We're going to take a little look at uh, this thing called the Scoville Index, which goes back a long ways. A gentleman by the name of Wilbur Scoville. So if you really want your name preserved in history, come up with something like the Scoville Index. And uh, it's just a measure, really, of how hot a pepper is. And the way they determine that is they actually have a panel, a taste panel, and then they've got um, uh, they take the pepper and they dilute it down with both sugar and water. And then they determine just the smallest amount that's necessary until you can detect that heat. So obviously the smallest amount is an indication of just how hot this pepper is. And Dave, you're always so helpful with the news. You know, there was a new Guinness uh, World Record set, I believe, just yesterday for the hottest pepper ever. And for the longest time, the habanero was record holder for about 25 years. And now apparently the... Uh, Carolina Reaper, there was a gentleman that just uh, set that record. I just heard it on the news yesterday. It had about 1.64 million units of pepper, and all he said was, with the first taste, that was painful. (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand the, uh, the, uh, I don't know, excitement about burning your mouth with uh, peppers. (laughs) 
I don't either. You know, when I look at some of these global charts, and wow. you get up to it, you get up to a certain point, and then they label it as um, hell, and then even farther <laughs> up, their label is fatal. Wow. So, <laughs> I don't think I'm particularly interested, but obviously there is a new world record out there right. that uh, Carolina Reaper, very very hot. Our peppers we've grown in this area by comparison are way down in that Scoville index. Uh, they're kind of wimpy by comparison. But if you need a little heat, we'll talk about some of that as well. Well, it is a good Our thing that in this area you get you can pretty much grow all the ingredients for salsa, right? Well, you can. And uh, the peppers of, of these, I think that's the most challenging. And we did some uh, research on that looking for both roasting peppers, but it applies to all peppers. So we did develop a few techniques. Uh, we've been able to consistently produce a lot of peppers, but it does require uh, attention to detail. It requires trying to collect as much heat as you can because they're very warm season crops, very valuable crops as well. Some of these colored peppers are not inexpensive, but we'll share some of our uh, some of what we learned in the research we did as well. So I feel fairly confident that with care and paying attention to detail and varieties, you can in fact grow. Uh, peppers in this area, even this far north. So all of the major ingredients for the the most significant types of uh, salsa we certainly can grow in this area. We're going to share some of those ideas with you uh, this evening. Once again, that's the Salsa Fest out at St. Lutheran Church. Register at 515. Join us for a fun evening. I want to thank everyone that participated, our judges, our celebrity judges, Neil Atkins included, as well as um, all of the master gardeners that are preparing some of the salsa dishes for tasting. We're going to take one more break, Bob, and be right back to wrap up the show. At 9.55, once again, Bob Olin. Yeah, it's going to be fun. You know, it's uh, to give you a comparison back to your news story that I heard on CBS News. Thank you, Dave. But regarding this new Guinness uh, Book of World Records, the hottest pepper, the peppers we grow in this area, like jalapenos, they have about 5,000 uh, Scoville units. When we take a look at what this gentleman consumed, and he said that uh, the cramps were terrible, he laid out a flat marble table for approximately an hour, and the rain was growing in pain. Why did anyone want to set this record? I'm not sure. But this Carolina Reaper, remember, our jalapenos have 5,000 units, uh, Scoville index units. The Carolina Reaper had... 1.64 million units. Oh, my. Very, very hot. But uh, these are things that are of interest, and sometimes you scratch your head and you wonder a little bit about uh, human nature. But we're going to keep it real bland. Uh, we're <laughs> going to have a fun time with uh, tomatoes. We're going to talk a little bit about food safety, but mainly about how you grow uh, good uh, tomatoes, the different types of tomatoes, paste tomatoes, a little bit on the garlic, a little bit on the peppers, a little bit even on the cilantro that goes in there. Fun time. And I really want to thank Troy, who's going to join us uh, for this evening's event. And uh, bring your pressure canner lids for testing and just come with us and enjoy a good time uh, sampling lots of different salsas and pick up a real nice recipe resource book in the process. This evening, starting at 515 Salem Lutheran Church, 4715 in Hermantown. And we want to thank uh, that facility with a certified kitchen that's worked with us in putting this on as well, Dave. All right. And, Troy, thank you for being here as well. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a great day. All right. 9.57. Bob, you got another show coming up next week. Don't forget about the Farmer's Market, too, which is coming up again uh, tomorrow and uh, Saturday.
Thank you, Dave. Lots of products still. Lots of was harvested, probably more than anything, because people were harvesting before the frost. So there's going to be a lot of product this Wednesday. Customer Appreciation Day on Saturday. Big day for us. We're going to have a good time. Two to five on Wednesday and eight till noon on Saturday. Duluth Farmers Market, 14th Avenue, East and 3rd. Thank you very much, Dave. Great show. All right. Thank you, Bob. 958 now at KDAL.